This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adikar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Please uh, forgive the delay in starting. Uh, we had some trouble getting some folks in, um, but I'm really grateful to all of you for being with us this morning, especially at such short notice. Um, so we have a, just a short time together this morning, um, but really important conversation for us today. I'm Rabbi Sharon Browse. Um, it's good to be with all of you. I'll tell you how I uh, came to be connected to uh, to Kfar Aza. Um, shortly after Yom Kippur, Yuval Wallman reached out to me, who's with us here today, um, who is Israeli living in Los Angeles, um, so that we could connect about the democracy movement in Israel based on a sermon that I gave on Yom Kippur. And then, of course, only a few days later, October 7th, uh, the massacres of October 7th happened. And once again, Yuval and I were in touch, and he said that there were some folks that he wanted me to meet in Israel. I told him I happened to be going to Israel um, later that week and that I would be uh, really honored to be able to meet with them, not only over Zoom, but also in person. And he facilitated a connection um, with the extraordinary people of Kibbutz Kfar Aza, who many of whom had been relocated after the massacre, almost immediately um, taken in at Kibbutz Shvayim in the center of the country. Um, as many of you know, uh, many, most of the survivors from the communities that were hardest hit in the Gaza envelope in those communities in the south have been relocated either to um, an area close to the Dead Sea or to the center of the country. Um, so my brother and I were able to go and spend some time at the kibbutz uh, with some really wonderful guys there, Mayan and Victor and Sion. Um, and to meet and to speak with many of the survivors and many of the people who had lost beloveds um, on October 7th and many of whom were um, still still waiting for word from those who had been abducted. And we spoke about our community, Ikar, um, and about the Jewish communities uh, of, of America who were deeply invested in really seeing hearing, honoring, bearing witness to what happened uh, to our family in Israel on October 7th, and also would be with them for the long haul, meaning through these days um, of, uh, of rebuilding that will, be, that will take obviously many years to come. And so we've been working together as a community with a really um, wonderful small group. And I wanna hear thank you Val and Mayan Harush and um, Dr. Elizabeth Sager, Liz Hirsch-Naftali, um, who's a, a board member uh, of ours and dear friend who you're going to be hearing from a, in a few moments, Ben Paul, Lindsay, Sturm, Lindsay Sturman, and a couple of others in our community who've been really thinking how it, it could be that we could honor the voices of um, the people of Kfar Aza and also as a community really commit to, uh, to this long-term relationship. Um, and so we will be talking a little bit more about that at the end of this call. I know we're also joined by other communities aside from Ikar. We have friends from um, from Mishkan uh, in Chicago who are here. And I put out the call and invite, at the, even though very much at the last minute, 
to communities from from really across the country. So I welcome you wherever you come from. Um, we're really grateful to have you here. Um, today, we're going to hear from two of the people who have direct familial connection and personal connection to um, to the events of October 7th. Um, unfortunately, one of our speakers had to pull out at the last minute. So we're going to hear from two people and then from representatives of the kibbutz who are going to tell us a little bit more about what the long term um, relationship could look like. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about Ikar's plans. So I do just want to say one final word before I'm going to turn it over to Ayelet Shachar Epstein. Thank you so much for being with us today, Ayelet. Um, I want to share that one of the most um, stunning and horrific developments post October 7th, um, as the horrors and the magnitude of that day and those attacks have unfolded, is the immediate attachment to fake news and denialism, which is so much a part of our time. Um, this kind of addiction to conspiracy theory um, and de denouncing the truth. And we are and must continue to be committed with every, from the very core of our being, with every bit of strength we have to hearing and honoring and lifting up the truth of what, um, of what has happened. Um, so that we can really affirm the humanity, um, affirm the loss and affirm the deep uh, needs of those who um, who've survived just as we as we have as a community fought for many decades against um, Holocaust denial. Really, people who look at our deepest wounds as a community um, and cannot see our suffering and cannot see our humanity and instead have to pretend that these things didn't even happen. In light of that, it's even more important than ever before that we um, that we hear these stories and that we share these stories. I read in an article um, in the last couple of days um, in the unending uh, news stories of this time. I read um, some some one journalist wrote this very beautiful um, story about actually it was about um, Ranana from Kfar Aza, whom I imagine you know I yell at um, one of the teens from the community, and the the journalist wrote life has etched the same scar on the souls of the survivors that for the people who've been through this, um, there is a scar and that is a scar that's recognizable to people who have um, lost loved ones um, and who are still still going to be struggling um, with the ongoing impact of this. So uh, as these survivors said, we are part of a family we never ask to be part of. Um, that family extends beyond uh, the immediate survivors, um, but also to our whole, um, our whole Jewish and human family. And so I thank you so much, Ayelet and Liz, for sharing your words um, with us this morning. We're deeply grateful to have you with us. Um, Ayelet, we'll turn to you first and then to, to Liz to share some words. <clears throat> okay, so good morning, everyone. It's evening here in Israel, so there's... Um dinner noises behind me. I hope you don't mind them too much. They don't disturb. Um, I'm really very glad um, to be able to attend this meeting. And I thank you, everybody, every, every each and every and one of you for um, for taking part and um, and hearing and listening to to what happened, because I think um, this is uh, this is tremendously important that the world understands what happened to us um, in Israel and more specifically in Kfaraz and my kibbutz. Um, 
כפר עזה has been established um, 60-64 years ago in the northern Negev, uh, very close to the Gaza Strip, only um, 1.8 kilometers. I'm not sure how much that's in miles, uh, but you'd be able to make the calculation. Very, very close. And um, although this proximity for many, many years, I, I grew up in this kibbutz. Um, we haven't felt a, a, a real threat um, being so close to Gaza. We, we had friendly relationship with the uh, people coming in from Gaza and working in our kibbutz. Um, me personally and my, my family, we had some, some, some friends that we, we kept contact for, for many years. This all stopped in 2008 um, when um, mortar bombs and after that rockets uh, began to um, to be aimed uh, at us, uh, at Kfar Aza. And uh, in May 2008, a member of the kibbutz, Jimmy Kdoshim, was killed was um, by a mortar bomb. And after that, that, that was a, a real turning point for us in Israel, for us in Kfar Aza. That's when we understood that this proximity is a, re a true threat. Um, we, you need to understand as a background at that point, in, uh, we didn't have safe rooms and there were no alarms. So uh, whenever an attack has started, there was really not much to do. And then what we, what we did, uh, especially parents for younger children, my, my kids were young at that point, um, we would leave the kibbutz for, for several weeks. Um, that happened several times. 2008 and then 2011 and then again in 2014 um, at uh, Protective Edge um, uh, confrontation, which was over two months that we were away from the kibbutz. Um, at that point, that's uh, when people started talking about the threats of tunnels. We, we didn't actually see them or hear them in Kfaraza, but they were like in the back of our minds. And I have to to tell you, uh, I'll share with you, uh, as a mother of two young children, at that point I already had three, um, that was the biggest threat that always um, frightened me very, very much, but it, it wasn't, um, it never came into reality until, well, until two months ago, almost two months ago. Um, during those years, Kfaraza flourished and actually, just before October 7th, I think we we came to um, the, the, the best point that we've ever been in 64 years of existence of this kibbutz. Um, uh, just a bit more than uh, 1,000 residents, mostly kibbutz members, but, but also um, other residents as well. Um, a lot of young people coming back to the kibbutz and living in the kibbutz. Um, Actually, one of the neighborhoods that, that suffered the most uh, during the attack of October 7th is all young and new kibbutz members that just joined in the past five or six years uh, to the kibbutz. Um, so the situation, I mean, the feeling in the kibbutz, the atmosphere was um, very uh, positive, very optimistic, very looking forward to, um, to a great future. Um, economically as well, everything was really um, on a very good and high note. Um, October 7th uh, took us by surprise. Um, for me personally, um, 
my world has collapsed that morning. Um, 6.30 a.m. was the first alarm. We went into the safe room. Um, we as um, myself, Ori, my husband, and our youngest daughter, Alma, she's 12. Um, I have two more two more kids, uh, Neta, um, who was 21, and his fiance, they lived in, a, in, in their apartment. So they, they were in their safe room in the apartment. And my middle daughter, she was away up north traveling. So um, one less worry. And then uh, five minutes after the alarm went off, we of course, we ran into the safe room. And then I got a phone call from um, my father-in-law that lives really um, only three houses away. Um, and he said, um, my mother-in-law has failed. She's, she's 81 years old. And what I had in mind is the that she tripped and and fell you know she's she's an elderly person um her movement hasn't been great it, it happened before that's what i pictured in my mind so i just i i put up put on my running shoes i was in my pajamas it was you know very early in the morning i just put my running shoes on and i ran there um and um i was devastated to find her uh shot dead um on her porch um, we already heard a lot of shooting going around, but when I ran there, I didn't see anything. I, I mean, the, the terrorists were somewhere else at that point. Only later on, I understood that actually some of the terrorists were um, at my next door neighbor, um, who and and they murdered her at at that very moment when I when I ran. So I was lucky because. A second later or a second earlier, they, they would have they would have shot me. Um, anyway, I, as I said, I found my mother-in-law Bilha, and um, after I realized that's what happened, we we ran into the safe room with uh, me and and Amos, my uh, uh, my father-in-law, and um, we next we spent the next uh, twenty-seven hours in in his safe room in their house. Two hours later, um, we we were on the phone with with mess. I mean, messaging uh, by WhatsApp, especially not very much talking because at that point we understood that terrorists are all over and we need to keep quiet. So uh, we were just texting, um, and we realized that terrorists are all all over the kibbutz. And it was two hours later when we got a message that my brother-in-law fear. Um, was shot and killed. He he went out to fight him and also um, a second brother-in-law of mine, Uri, who's married to my sister. They um, they both ran out very early in the morning to uh, to fight um, with our um, immediate unit in the kibbutz. Um, there were very few in front of very very many uh, terrorists, um, hundreds of terrorists. Uh, some people talk about 400 or even 500 terrorists that came into Kfaraza alone. Um, altogether, I think the numbers are around 8,000. But in our kibbutz, um, confronting uh, our um, unit of uh, immediate uh, response that are only 12 men, uh, there were around, I don't know, hundreds of, of, of terrorists. So um, 
the, our unit did did not. I mean, the the most of them were were shot uh, and uh, and killed. Um, the I I'm guessing I, I we don't know exactly the the timeline, but probably amongst of the first one is is the commander of that unit, and because he was killed so early um he he was the one who normally would um process information within the kibbutz but once he was gone and then um um some other people of, of um the management of the kibbutz were killed as well uh so no information went through there was no circulation of information at those hours and that of course made everything so much more difficult to to understand and to even um, to get a picture of what's going out on uh, outside. Um, during that time, um, I was texting my, my son and and my fiance, my son Neta, and his uh, girlfriend uh, Irene. That um, they already had plans to get married next April. Um, so we were texting them, and they um, they wrote that uh, Hamas terrorists are all over their neighborhoods. They they lived in the, in the youngsters' neighborhood, um, which was so we understood later um, like a major uh, a, a major event. Um, most of most of the um, murders and um, uh, capturing of uh, of hostages was in that neighborhood. Um, about forty people live in that neighborhood, and and most of them were either killed or kidnapped. Um, at eleven, just after eleven o'clock in the morning, um, they entered their apartment, Neta and Iran's apartment. They burst into their safe room and threw a grenade. Uh, a first and a second one that didn't go off. And then the third grenade, uh, Neta jumped on it um, to save Iran. And that's exactly what he did. He he was, um, he, he took the explosive in, in his body and, and he died. Um, she hid underneath his body for for five hours, um, keeping very quiet until um, military military forces, IDF forces, were there to rescue her. Um, I I got to know all that by uh, by texting her. I mean, it was it was devastating. I mean, I I don't. I can't really find the right words to to use to to explain what I felt, um, but I couldn't cry because we we had to keep very quiet in, in the safe room. So um, both me and my um, father-in-law Amos, we 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 kept each other um, very very tightly and very strongly. I think it, it, we we took strength one from another in those uh, horrific hours. Um, I can't tell exactly how many hours later, I think it was around um, some, somewhere in the afternoon, four or five in the afternoon, um, terrorists came to the next door neighbor 
to our to our house and uh, we heard them and we just sat, sat tightly in in the safe room keeping quiet we heard them outside yelling in arabic um shooting on the house shooting like crazy um i was afraid they um they hit the um the the gas tank and that we we would explode in fires but um thankfully that didn't happen um i didn't mention very early in the morning um the electricity went off because um because hamas took down the electricity and also um uh the the communication uh, channels they they blew them off and then uh, i mean very shortly after uh, our phones went off because there was no electricity we had recharges in, in the in the safe room but there was no electricity so we couldn't we couldn't charge our phones and from that point until the next morning we we were cut off communication of course to my family friends and and colleagues everywhere they were all seriously worried i mean they thought like they thought we were gone my my sister was um she was really in stress um and um that's it when the night fell i mean when darkness uh, came down i i realized we won't be rescued that night um the whole time awful shooting continuing just non-stop um regular shooting but also uh rockets and and mortar bombs and i don't know even what but like very very heavy um in amounts that we've never heard before and the next morning we um i heard a, a car stopping by the house so uh i went out of the safe room to to um signature to to sign to to the soldiers that we were there and they came out and rescued us it was uh, after 10 a.m and um my husband and daughter were only rescued two hours later um yeah that's about it ayelet <laughs> thank you for sharing this and i I'm so moved by your words and so aware that each time you speak, it must take an incredible toll on your heart to have to relive these most um, anguished moments of your life. So I thank you for sharing and I will, we're going to come back to you in a moment, but I know that we have Liz now who unfortunately has to leave for a meeting shortly. So I'm going to turn it quickly to Liz and then we'll continue our conversation. Um, this is Liz, Naft Liz Hirsch Naftali, whom uh, many in our community know beloved community member and board member um, whose family uh, was in Kfar Aza. So Liz, would love for you to share um, your story with us. Well, thank you. And Ayelet, thank you for sharing. Um, you know my relatives, Smidar and Liron and Shlomit and all their family. They're very good um, friends of mine, all of them. Yeah, no, I know. Um, so I... While this was all happening, I was in Israel, but I was in Tel Aviv in a stairwell. And the reporting that we received was from Amalia and Michael, the six and 10 year old, they were locked in a closet. So many of you know the story of Abigail, but I would like to just 
recap part of it because I think it's important to just keep telling the story. So that morning, as Ayala spoke, the bombs started coming and people thought it was just like you get in the bomb shelter, you get in the safe room, it's another day. But before very early in that morning, a Hamas terrorist came in and murdered my niece, Madar, in her home. Her six and 10-year-old were there and they ran outside and they found their father, Roe, who was with Abigail, and they all started to run for safety. While they were running, Hamas terrorists shot and murdered Roe. He fell onto Abigail. The six and 10-year-old believed that they were both shot and dead, and they ran and locked themselves in the closet for 14 hours. They were our reporters that day. They were our WhatsApp. They were our FaceTime. They they actually FaceTimed with the, the grandmother who was in Bulgaria on a trip. And she said, why is it so dark? I said, well, we're in a closet. And then they explained to their grandmother that their mother and father had been murdered. She didn't believe it. She didn't understand what was happening, which Ayelet just described, the chaos and the craziness. And she actually made them go outside to show that Smidar had been murdered. So then they spent 14 hours in a closet until they were able to move to other relatives to be in the safe room until the kibbutz was cleared for them to leave. But what ended up happening was Abigail crawled out from her father's body covered in his blood and went to a neighbor, a neighbor that she knew. She went to school with the little boy, gone together. And they took her in and they locked her with the mother, Hagar, and her three kids in the safe room. And this father, he went out to protect, defend the kibbutz, but he was injured and he never came home. And it took us a few days to understand. So for three days, four days, we thought Abigail had died. Um, and a witness on the kibbutz said, I saw Hagar being taken out by Hamas terrorists with little kids. And so we assumed that Abigail was one of those little kids. And from that day till Sunday, which was two days, three days ago now, we knew nothing. We did not know where Abigail was. We did not know who she was with. We did not know anything. All I prayed, and I yell at you can understand this, was that Hagar was there taking care of her as well as her own three kids, because we all know what a mother would do in that circumstance. And I know and, Hagar personally, and uh, I'm sure that's exactly what she did. Yeah. And that's all, that's all I could imagine, because I could not imagine after all of what you went through and everyone went through that this little girl was alone. And that was the only bit of saving grace in this tragic, horrific time. So because I, I, I'm in DC today, I've been here for six weeks and I'm meeting with different people and we just met with the International Red Cross and we have another meeting I need to go to. I wanna sort of bring it back <clears throat> to where we are now and then pass it back to you all, um, Ayelet and, and Rabbi Browse, which is to say, I just left a White House press corps and the one question they asked and everyone asked is, how is Abigail? And it's, it's one of those questions that you're thinking, this is a three-year-old who turned four on Friday as a captive in Gaza. She saw her parents murdered. She came out um, to her aunt and her grandmother. 
after, and we all saw it, after the van left Gaza that was shaken and screamed at by Palestinians as they left in a Red Cross van. And we saw in the pictures that Abigail was sitting on someone's lap, Sagar's lap. And when they ask how she's doing, I keep saying, we don't know how she will be doing. This is gonna take years. We have no idea, but what she has is an incredible aunt who she will live with, with her brother and sister, an uncle and grandparents and family. And she will be so well loved, so taken care of. And when, when I, people say, well, how was she? The truth is all of these hostages, and now I speak because I'm spending so much time, these hostages are coming back and they are what we heard people who were survivors of the Holocaust. They are emaciated, they are insect bitten, they are, some can't speak, they don't have any light in them. And then you see when there's the videos of them getting to hug their loved ones in Israel, you see the spark start, you see the light come back, but then it takes days and for Abigail, her brother and sister visit her the second day with the cousins. They're all very close. Ayala explained, everyone lives near each other. And that has brought more joy and laughter. And this is a little girl that was always running with the big kids. She could keep up with them in a soccer game. She could keep up with them. She was telling them what she wanted. And little by little, she is coming back to that person. But where I take this is that Abigail has been a symbol of hope for so many of these hostages. And Abigail's aunt and family are going to continue advocating for all of these hostages, even though Abigail is with them. She does not have a home. She does not have parents. But her aunt and her family and us here in, in D.C. and in the U.S., our goal is to keep advocating for our hostages. Because, you know, what they want to ask us is, what is your political opinion? What do you think Bibi should do? What do you think the government should do? What All we... And that's why I'm here today is to say we just need to get these hostages back. We need to get these people home. Um, there's still a nine month, 10 month old child that they have no idea where he is or they say they don't. There's some there's young men, there's young women. There's a boy whose arm was shot off, was was blown off. There are girls, young women who we all know, and I'm not even going to say it in this conversation. We know what is happening to them. We know what they use how they use these women. The reason I'm here is yes, we need to raise and yes, we need to support, but we need to keep telling the stories. People need to hear Ayelet's story. They need to hear that an 81 year old woman was murdered on her porch, an innocent woman. They need to hear what her son did to save his girlfriend's life. We need to keep telling these stories. And I know how hard Ayelet, for me, and it's not my child, but I, I, I don't know how you do it. But thank you and keep telling your story because that honors your son and it honors what he did. And what I can only say is that it is upon all of us to tell these stories. They may not be your family, but they're all our family. And the one thing that I know is that everyone has a story. And for Kibitz Far Aza, there's no place for people to live. Their homes were destroyed, their lives were destroyed, but being here and having everybody join and listening is a light. It is a hope because we're all in this together. I yell at you're not alone. 
but we all need to be there for Ayelet and we need to be there for Abigail and for her sister, for Amalia and for Michael, because this is what they have. It's us. And so we continue to put the pressure on the government to get the rest of the hostages out. We continue to do what we are doing, Sharon and our community, which is to make sure that the people of Far Aza are taken care of, are loved, are nourished. And I just say thank you because I don't know who's out there, but thank you. And please just keep telling these stories. You know, the holidays are coming. First, we'll have Hanukkah. People won't have their families at Hanukkah. Then we have Christmas. Then we have New Year's. We hope and pray these people are home before then. But what I ask of everybody here is just to keep these stories going and keep putting the pressure so that nothing gets lost as we also understand that we go into this holiday season. Um, these are peoples, we all know they're, they're innocent people. And so I thank you for giving me this opportunity. And um, the last thing I'll say is Abigail was hope that we could get hostages out and we're getting more hostages out. Abigail is hope that we can rebuild the lives of people from Kfar Aza. Abigail is hope. A four-year-old is hope that Israel can find its way. And Abigail is hope that we make this region, this world, a better place for our children. Because at the end of the day, that is all of our responsibility. And so I just say thank you so much. And um, it's an honor and it's a privilege to speak to you. And um, thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Um, I know that you're running off to important meetings, and so I really want to bless you. Um, Liz, like, uh, uh, has been has been tireless in the past 51 days, um, speaking to every single person who will listen, not only on, by, on behalf of Abigail and her family, but on behalf of all of those who've been taken captive and whose families have just been broken um, in this time. And so, Liz, I, I really, I'm so moved, and I, I really believe that um, that part of the reason that this most recent breakthrough of the last five days unfolded is because of your tireless advocacy. Um, I know that the stories that you've shared have made their way to the president of the United States, um, to the to the um, former speaker of the house and many others. And it just, it really makes a difference. So thank you. And I bless you with continued strength as you, um, as you share these stories and these words. Um, so I, I yell it. I want to I want to turn back to you now for a moment and I'm going to just invite folks if you'd like there's a Q&A function on the bottom. Um, I see some people are putting their love there. Um, and if, um, if Vera, if you can um, help put pin Abigail and me um, just we can maybe we can talk for just a couple of minutes. Um, about what the reality is like now for the families that are um, that are on uh, that, that have been relocated from Kfar Aza. And then I want to invite Mayan to come in who can share with us a little bit about what the plans are for the rebuilding. Um, and I will say that I know it's hard to even talk and think about rebuilding when every day we're finding out the lists of who's coming out of Gaza right now and really just praying that we can get as many um, of these folks home as possible. But we also have to talk about the rebuilding now because there are people whose lives are in are being suspended right now um, without without homes and need to have something to lift their gaze and look toward in the future. Um, and so I want to I do want to talk about that. So um, I yell at one of the things that I learned when I was at Kibbutz Shvaim is that the um, the relocations have been done. It was very fast and it seemed like to me, the most extraordinary demonstration of the power of civil society 
um, it really seemed like the, the 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 people of Israel stepped up with with real immediacy and urgency to make sure that folks could be housed um, and have as many of their physical needs taken care of as possible in those earliest days, medical needs, psychological care. Um, there were in Kibbutz Shvayim, there were massage tables that were set up. And I learned that every evening um, massage therapists were coming from around the country to just help try to bring some kind of to ease some of the pain and bring a little bit of some measure of comfort. I saw a little shop that had been set up on the kibbutz with all free clothing for people who left their homes with really nothing. Um, and I was so struck and moved by the human to human power here. Um, what you described it as the dynamic with your father-in-law Amos that you you took strength in one another in those terrible hours. Um, I saw that happening. I was there two weeks after um, October 7th and I saw people taking strength in one another. And I wonder if you can just take a moment and describe a little bit of what um, of what what you're seeing now on the on the ground in terms of the way that those the refugees from those communities have uh, have found strength and found community with one another even in their temporary homes where they've been relocated to and one thing I'll I'll add that I was I was really struck by the relocation of families collectively that there's been an effort to put as many people from each kibbutz together as possible so that they can so that they can go through this time of both grieving and also hopefully um, some healing together. Can you share a little bit about what the reality is like for you now and what you've what you've seen? Yeah, um, so um, for us as a family, we were um, five um, different, like uh, I would say five different um, uh, uh families in our big uh, in our big clan of the uh, big bigger family uh epstein shachar and russo that's our like the surnames and in all five houses we were um each house was hit at least once um one house was hit twice and that's exactly what we need now to to recollect and to be together and lean one on another so my father-in-law he now lives with my sister-in-law in matan we we did not stay in shfaim with uh, the rest of kfaraza um, we stayed here with family in in matan it's uh, very close to kfar saba but we did go there uh, like almost every day and uh, the kids are there uh, regularly every day uh, uh, doing different activities with, with the kids and the youth. So um, my father-in-law is, uh, I mean, he's he's been taken care of very closely by, by all of us. He's now living with my sister-in-law and um, people over here in Matan in this community have helped us um, in matter of days to to uh, find way in and um, preparing a special room for him with with a bed with all his special needs as, as an elderly person after that uh, we've been able to to find um, an apartment for my sister-in-law Vered, who lost both her husband and her son mm -hmm. so she's now uh, with her three boys um, they found an apartment here in Matan and also, in a matter of, I think it was five days, a bare house was totally furnished uh, with all electricity, appliances, 
uh, with bed linens and towels and everything new and nice and, and you know, very warm um, and really beautifully done. And then uh, two weeks later, we, we were able to find a house for my family, um, Ori and I and our two daughters. And again, the same scenes came show themselves um, this community here in Matan. They, there was one person who was the commander and she was in contact with, I don't know, 30 or 40 people. And we, we the house that we came in was just, um, they just finished building it um, a, a month ago. So it was it, it literally bare, like bare walls with nothing, no electricity even, no, nothing. And and just in, in a matter of 14 days, it was, it, it's, it's all, it's decorated, it's furnished, it's, there's, there's, um, there's closets, there's a fridge, there's uh, an oven, everything, absolutely everything, um, just in order for us to, to feel at home, to feel, uh, to get some comfort um, in this uh, home away from home. Um, now, my, my sister also came here, so we're back to being uh, one clan, very close to each other, um, just like we were in Kfaraza, actually. Um, and uh, I guess that that's what our future is going to look like in the next uh, few months or even, I don't know, years until things are more clear um, about Kfaraza. Um, it's very difficult uh, to think about uh, going back there um, because um, this this has been um, our home for so many years. My my parents, the, I'm my late parents. They they came there when they were very young. They they built up our family, and so were my, my husband's parents. They they were the first pioneers who built up the kibbutz uh, in, in the early 1950s. Um, they 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 literally built the kibbutz with their bare hands. They they um, protected the um, the kibbutz for so many years from. Uh, any kind of of threat, and now and now it's broken. Um, so uh, I don't know. I mean, I've I've been back um, a couple of times. It's really, it's really heartbreaking, breaking to to see <laughs> what those people or these I don't know evil powers um, did to our home. It's it's wrecked. It's shattered. Um, houses are burnt um, to ashes. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you have been to Kfaraza yourself, Sharon. Um, no, um, it's uh, it's not it's not an easy thing to 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 see, um, especially the neighborhood, the the young people's neighborhood where um, where my son was killed and. Um, it's um, also um, my nephew who um, lives only three apartments away from him. His um, his apartment was was burned to to ashes. It's like it's walking there. It it, it would remind you. It, it would remind you like walking through Dachau or 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 Auschwitz. It's it's so horrible. Mm. 
you you walk through those apartments and you can actually see the scenes of people trying to to escape and and um and people dying in their houses just you know burnt alive and people taking host taken hostage there's um two very young women um they're friends of mine uh, Emily Damari is one and Edron Steinberger is another two beautiful beautiful women um who I know since they were babies <laughs> I know their parents, of course, their parents are very good friends of ours, and um it's um uh, it's unbearable to think what they're going through. I'm very thankful and happy that that Hagar is back um and and Hen also Hen Goldstein um another very good friend of mine that came back with her three kids <clears throat> and is now a widow and also um She also lost her daughter and and her husband and uh I mean we we really need to get those those people back home it's um it's awful yes I yell it I'm so I'm so grateful to you and a lot of the comments that are coming in are just people who are incredibly moved and grateful for you to have the courage to share this story and I'm I'm sure that there's a um, an a spiritual and physical exhaustion that comes with managing your own trauma and grief and also needing to be a spokesperson to the world of what you experienced so I don't want to um, press you now but I do I do want to just share with you um, as I'm now holding your story I, I want to share with you on Shabbat I spoke a little bit about this moment in the dynamic um, in Parshat Vayetze between Rachel and Jacob, um, her beloved. And Rachel is really tortured by her infertility and she's in so much pain and she cries out to Jacob. And, um, you know, she says, Hava libanim, like, give me children. Um, if not, I'm going to die. And Jacob just doesn't understand how to respond to her pain. And he gets very defensive and very angry at her. And I was speaking about it on Shabbat as in the context of what does it mean to encounter somebody who's just in anguish and our obligation is simply to hear them, to see them, to affirm them, um, and to share their, their story, to take some of the anguish with us. Our tradition says we can take 160th of the, of the pain from somebody who's in pain. And, and so here we have, you know, we had 250 people with us in a moment's notice today. And I hope each of us can take just a little piece of, of your heartache, a little piece of Netta, a little piece of Abigail, and hold them in our, in our hearts um, and carry their stories forward so that you don't have to do this sacred and anguished work alone. And I'm really blessing you, Ayelet, with some consolation in the days ahead, knowing um, that your son died in a, the most heroic and way, just in the, in the deepest expression of love, not because he wanted to be a hero, but because his instinct was that he could save another person, someone he loved, and he did. Um, I hope that there is some comfort for you in these in these dark days ahead, knowing that. 
and knowing that you really are not alone, even in the darkest night, that we, your diaspora family, we've never met before in person, but we now are, we are more connected than ever before. And we're not abandoning you and we will be with you now and in the days ahead. And I, God willing, one day we'll be able to um, hug in person and we'll welcome you to our community in LA and the other communities that are here with us. Um, and, and also we'll be able to be with you wherever you are in Israel and hopefully connect in person. Um, I really, I really bless you with that and hope that your son's memory is always a blessing to all who knew him. Um, I wanna use our last few moments to turn it to Mayan um, and Yuval who can share um, a little bit about how we can help. And I thank all of those people who've written into the Q&A, what can I do now? How can I help now? And of course, this is, um, this is what we need to do now to hear from you about what is most needed and how our community can stand uh, with those uh, who have suffered in this way from, from Kfar Aza and all of the communities um, at the border. Thank you, Sharon, uh, Rabbi Browse and Ayelet. Uh, um, we are family now, as uh, Rabbi Browse mentioned, and uh, we spoke earlier this week. And uh, the team uh, in Israel, my colleagues in Israel, works work very closely with you and your family and uh, and other kibbutz members. And the message coming from me as well and Cyberproof USD, my my colleagues, is that we are here for you, and we will do our utmost to support and help and work with you through the long journey you're facing and in a way i am inspired by the uh the way you can convey your uh, um, experience and emotions and i'm sure that I, and we're seeing that in the questions being asked at, at this forum um uh, our hearts uh, go out to you uh, with an immense uh will to support and help and i'm sure this a convention, a short notice convention, as Sharon um, Rabbi Browse mentioned, will help to drive more and more support that hopefully uh, you need. Um, Mayan and I here, Mayan, maybe you can share a few slides. I know that the audience wants to know how can we further support, and our the principle that we're following as is that we will support as needed. We don't want to tell you what you need. You need to tell us what you need. And we're working very closely with the leadership of the kibbutz, with Victor, who connected us, uh, Ayelet, uh, whom we know very well, and, and others. And uh, we're taking it step by step. We're following the progress, the journey of recovery that uh, Victor and team uh, are leading. Uh, we know you work very closely. The kibbutz work very closely with the authorities in Israel. But still, uh, it's not only about the authorities, it's also about community and help and the diaspora community here in LA uh, is, is is part of that. And so Mayan, maybe we can share a few slides and we can guide the audience on how uh, we can take immediate steps of support and further uh, how we can join a longer journey uh, because it will be many years of recovery and rebuild, but with a, a notion of hope and, and prosperity for the kibbutz. Mayan, go ahead. Thank you, Yuval, and thank you, Ayelet and Rabbi Browns for sharing these words and allowing us to bear testimony. Um, I'm going to share here a few slides. Just let me know if you can see them. Uh, to speak a little bit about how we can get involved from what feels to be so far away. Already, I think that my screen's sharing. So my name is Mayan Harush. I'm also involved in the team here in Los Angeles. I'm based in Israel, um, but I'm working on the, with the team to help with the recovery efforts. Again, as you've all mentioned, hand in hand with the kibbutz. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about kind of what's going on so that we all know. I know there's so much news 
Um, we're going to take a look at what's going on with the kibbutz and how we can get directly involved. Um, so as we know in the kibbutz, 62 members of the kibbutz uh, were killed, 10 hostages released, eight are still being held hostage, many are dealing with severe uh, injuries, temporary housing solutions, you know, children are still being integrated into schooling systems, um, they're figuring out how to best set up their own housing solutions and their own long-term, you know, adjustments to having a stable life after all the tragedies that occurred. So that's sort of where things are standing today. Um, the kibbutz leadership, as you've all mentioned, uh, in collaboration with Victor and many other amazing, amazing task forces, um, and as Ayelet really alluded to, they are focused on bringing things together in a community-driven um, framework. And that means keeping people together. Of course, we know that a kibbutz is a united um, community, and keeping people together in the way that they see fit really is a major value. And I think that it speaks to how the kibbutz is really reestablishing and rebuilding and how we can be a part of that community-driven movement. Some of the focuses on the way that the kibbutz is rebuilding, um, they're split into three different sections. So we have the development. We know that the kibbutz was destroyed. We know that people's businesses, people's livelihoods were destroyed. And developing that really is kind of part of the first emergency protocol. Um, and second to that, we have the community functions. You know, how are kids going to go to school? How are people going to have the legal support that they need? How are they going to get mobility to go to work, to go to school, to have doctor's appointments? All of that needs to be reestablished, um, and that's part of the work that they're doing. And individually, each family has its own needs, and, and each family has been going through a different tragedy, um, and they're navigating that as well and providing individual help to people. Uh, we know that the plan is going to take many, many years. You know, now we're kind of in the emergency response stage and in the placement in Kibbutz Shfa'im, which most of the Kibbutz uh, members of Kfaraz are located at. Uh, we're in progress there and we're moving into establishing the temporary housing solution and getting them more stable resources. Um, and of course, you know, people are estimating three years, something around then they'll be able to get back to a permanent housing solution that is safe and that is focused on community. You know, that's really of the utmost importance um, and it's going to be a long journey um, and we'll be with them throughout that. Um, so I want to touch on how we can help from Los Angeles. We're so far away and yet we're so close and we all fear that our hearts have broken, you know, in the same way at the same time. So I want to just touch on a few initiatives. Um, on each initiative, you can just pull out your phone camera and you can scan a QR code to get to a link. So first and foremost, the kibbutz needs funds in order to rebuild. Um, we have a community fund that is being sent directly to the nonprofit that supports the kibbutz. Um, any generous donation is appreciated and really does make a major impact because the costs really are so high. If you'd like to bring Kibbutz Kfar Aza's cause to your network and your community, you know, we're doing events all the time. We're getting people involved. It's really essential as we did today to hear people's stories and voices. And on the third QR code, you can join a task force. If you have a specialty in anything, working with kids, working with legal aid, the elderly, working in education, if you're looking to generally get involved in the support efforts, please, 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 you can send in your name and we would like to get people connected hands-on as much as possible uh, to help drive the rebuilding. And there will be links also sent in the chat uh, for anybody that didn't get to scan. Uh, we know that we have Hanukkah coming up and something I think small but really, really meaningful that we can all do is to buy a gift for a kid in Kfar Aza. Uh, we're giving the kids the chance to choose their own gift and here in LA, we're gonna match directly to them and buy that gift for them. And then people will go and hand deliver it to them. Um, and I think it's a really, really beautiful, really, really happy initiative 
you know, we'd like to bring light to them in any way that we can. So that's what we're doing on Hanukkah. Also available, any information about that on the website. And if you'd like to know more about our efforts and get involved and be with us for this long-term process, you know, we're really just at the beginning of the rebuilding um, and we need you all there with us and we're going to do it together and we will rebuild Kfar Aza together. So thank you very, very much uh, for this platform and for sharing the cause. Thank you. Thank you, Mayan. I'm so grateful for this. A few people are asking if we can share all of these links and this information by email for those who are not able to pick up those um, those threads here. And so, I um, we, so we will absolutely do that. And we'll put um, all of this on. We'll put the whole PowerPoint on our website at ecar.org. I K A R. Org, and we also have a list of participants here, so we'll send out some links to follow up. Um, I'm really grateful for that. There were, enough, I think that many of the questions that people asked have actually been answered in terms of um, immediate and direct ways that we can have an impact. I know many people have questions about whether or not people will ultimately be able to go back to the kibbutz if that really is their goal. And as Mayan shared, I mean, for seems for many people um, that that is the long-term goal to be able to return to their community. Um, and I suspect, Ayelet, that not everybody is exactly on the same page there, but I know that that's part of what um, what many people are working toward now. Um, so we are we're looking to address immediate needs and also thinking about long-term needs. Um, I do want to share that ICAR is hosting, um, as Vera put, thank you, Vera, for adminning this session. Um, Vera put the links, and maybe we can repeat them again um, for a number of ways that we can continue to support. Um, but if we can put the link to our um, October, we're having a, a Hanukkah party um, where our Chazan Hillel Tike and, uh, and, and his group, um, Judeo, um, all of these musicians are going to be together um, on Saturday night, December 9th, and that evening will be dedicated as a fundraiser for um, Kfar Aza um, for both the immediate and long-term needs. So I hope that you'll join us there in person and also contribute as generously as you're able so that we can continue to help. Um, and uh, and and I, I, I just want to, I, I want to say two last things as we close. One, um, when I was touring around um, Kibbutz Shvayim, speaking with the with many of the survivors from Kfar Aza, um, one of the things that we spoke about um, in, in along with my guides was that the people of Kfar Aza don't. It's not just financial. It's not just monetary support that people are looking for, but really a sense of broader family and community and some kind of real spiritual connection. And that's one of the reasons that we felt a, a partnership with ICAR, um, along with other communities like CBE in Brooklyn that I know many people from Kfar Aza are connecting with, and some of the other communities that are on with us today is really meaningful because um, together, hopefully we can um, lift up our voices in song and prayer um, to really help this uh, this Jewish family feel connected to each other. So I'm especially grateful for and looking for those uh, moments of opportunity. Um, I, I want to close um, just again with a thank you to all of, to to Ayelet um, for sharing um, your story and sharing your devastation so that we can help hold you, um, your family um, and Netta's memory in our heart to Yuval Mayan Elizabeth, um, to Liz for sharing so much of herself um, with, with the world in these days as we've been fighting to get Abigail home, to Ben and Lindsay, and from our team, Eddie Carr, um, to Elad Dvash Banks, 
um, to Melissa Balaban, to Ben and to Vera, who have been uh, working tirelessly to pull all of this together. And of course, to Chazan Hillel um, for offering to do this beautiful evening of song um, together during Hanukkah so that we can raise some money. Um, and finally, I just want to close with a word. Um, I've shared this a few times since um, October 7th, but we we had just walked uh, into Shabbat morning services when we heard uh, what was unfolding um, in Israel on October 7th. And really were just um, struck without that there were no words to describe um, the horrors of what we knew were unfolding, even though we knew only a, a small sliver of what was happening at the time. And Hannah Roth, a beloved community member with family in Israel, just put a siddur in my hand. And she said, we have to say, that we have to say a prayer for those who've been taken captive. And I held the siddur in my hand. And this is a siddur I pray from every day. And I was so struck that in this prayer book that we use every single day, there's a prayer that Jews say when members of our family are taken captive. What does that mean? That, that it's already, the words are, are here for us when there are no words. And I remember standing up and sort of stumbling over these words because we aren't used to saying them, um, and and yet they're here. And the line that struck has stuck out for me during this time as we've been saying them uh, over and over and over. Uvautzion berina v'simchat olam al rosham sason v'simcha yasigu. Um, that even as we're talking about people who have been taken from their home. Uh, taken from their families against their will, um, the, the words of our rabbis are already envisioning that we might be able to return them to their loved ones with rina, with simcha, with sason, with joy, um, all kinds of joy, um, that we might collectively again be able to lift up our spirits um, in song and in dance and in celebration. And I know in times of incredible heartache, it feels almost heretical to even say those words. Could we even imagine um, that there could be sasson v'simcha again, this kind of wholehearted joy again. And yet our tradition tells us that we hold that dream because even when it seems impossible now, we cry out from the deepest darkness um, in the hopes that there might be comfort and consolation, there might be return, and there might one day be some kind of mending of our broken hearts and our broken family. Um, and if we can find the strength to continue to lift up that dream and that prayer now, um, then maybe we or our children might merit seeing a world in which that is um, that is the truth. So I yell it with immeasurable gratitude to you and to all of you who came together on such short notice today. I thank you. I bless you with tenderness, um, with love, and with continued faith. Um, as Liz said, Abigail is the hope. Abigail is the hope, and may we continue um, to find our hope in these very difficult days. Thank you all so much for being with us. Thank you. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.